0: Want the package being delivered. Hello out there in Cyberland. The metaverse. The word was coined by Neil Stevenson in the book Snow Crash. It was a physical space where people could interact online. A digital playground where the people were only limited by their imagination. Facebook has changed its name to Meta, and it's trying to build an actual metaverse. Now other companies are rushing to get a piece of Mark Zuckerberg's vision of the future. What is the metaverse, and what is Mark Zuckerberg's vision of the future? What does this actually mean concretely? Here to help me puzzle out this nightmarish world Silicon Valley billionaires want for us is Motherboard Senior Editor Janice Rose and Panopticon Expert and College Professor Chris Gilliard. I'm Matthew Galt, and this is Cyber. So, thank you both so much for joining me.
1: Hi.
2: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: Okay, so, I feel like... The marketing hype around this thing this metaverse is already grossly out of control um can one of you tell me exactly what the pitch here actually is janice i know you recently wrote something about this
1: yeah so basically mark zuckerberg for a while has been teasing sort of like a vision of virtual reality as a sort of next phase to social media um this was basically the first time this was ever hinted at was when, of course, Facebook bought Oculus in, I think, 2014 for $2 billion. Um, it was a big deal at the time, but it was also kind of a, v- a bit mysterious because nobody really understood at the time, like, how the, how does this work with the, the larger sort of, like, Facebook mission of social media Um, And basically at the time, uh, Mark Zuckerberg like described virtual reality and, you know, like this kind of embodied virtual experience as like the next computing platform is the way he described it. Um, And sort of like as a successor to the sort of like two dimensional social media um, sharing likes and posts and all this other stuff that we're used to doing on social media. So then in 2016, they finally sort of debuted for the first time a live demonstration of the virtual reality technology as it would apply to Facebook. And like, um, basically like showed for the first time, like what they're sort of thinking when it comes to this, this sort of, um, this technology as a form of socializing and, um, and it was a very awkward and of course like cringeworthy sort of demo with Mark Zuckerberg like having this like embodied virtual avatar and like you know sort of transporting to his uh transporting to his like glass walled office transporting to his home where there was a camera set off where you could like wave at his like pooley sheep dog and like all kinds of other things and it was sort of just this like introduction where facebook was trying to establish itself as a vr company um and i guess now uh, with the announcement of meta we have a sort of like more complete vision of like what facebook's intentions are um and you know using the term metaverse which you were you were saying is you know something coined by science fiction authors as this like kind of alternate reality where we exist as digital avatars, um, kind of like as an escapist fantasy in a lot of ways. And like, yeah, the other thing is like, you know, the way that this was depicted in science fiction literature is never as like a utopian thing. It was always depicted as like, well, the real world is so messed up that like the only thing we can do to like enjoy our, Existences is is to inhabit these virtual spaces where we can at least give ourselves the illusion that we live in a better world. Um, And Mark Zuckerberg's, you know, of course, vision for this is that it's all controlled by Facebook slash meta. And, um, you know, we have, we live in these like embodied spaces. And that's sort of um, what he was demonstrating for the announcement of meta was like, you know, digital avatars, Buying things from like marketplaces, buying like digital items, decorating a virtual house and living this kind of like Sims like existence in the metaverse. And that's kind of uh that's kind of where we're at now. And of course, you know, there's all kinds of problems which we can talk about where what happens when Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg are the ones that are in control of this, you know, whole experience.
0: Am I still distorted and strange?
1: Yes.
2: A okay. little bit.
0: Um, let's
1: try You're this. a little better now, but like definitely well, during the intro, it was like very, you might need to re-record the I'm intro. I'm going to have to
0: re-record it. Let me try. Recording stopped. If I turn off the redundancy, how do I sound now?
1: Now you sound good.
0: Okay. That's what it was doing. The computer can't handle doing both of those things.
1: <laughs> okay. Yeah, I had to like very quickly turn down my speaker because I was worried that since I wasn't muted, it was going to feed back and...
0: Yeah. I'm so sorry about that. Uh, but yeah, I can, I can rerecord the intro. Um, all right. So well, let's get into that Janice. Cause you know, one of the things that inspired this particular, ep- this particular episode is your recent piece in motherboard Zuckerberg's meta end game is monetizing all human behavior. Um, and you kind of hinted at that just now. So what, what do you see as the end goal for him when he is in control of people's interactions online?
1: Right. So I think like to answer this question, it helps to go back to like the beginning of the web as we know it and the way that advertising has kind of integrated itself into um, the web and websites. And basically, like when, when the internet started becoming a popular sort of destination for you know, news and like sites that people would frequent and people were trying to figure out how to make money off of this. You know, advertising was what crept in as it always does um, to that space. And uh, basically what they would do is that they would measure people's interactions um, with the websites and they still do this to this day. And so that's where we get all of these like trackers, which, you know, like there are countless extensions that you can install for browsers that like block trackers that basically like take note of what web pages you visit, like what sites you visit, and then kind of track you across the web, track all your interactions. Um, And specifically, um, you know, all of this activity, all of this like surveillance that's going on in the two-dimensional web is limited or has been limited to like clicks and scrolls and like you know how how long your mouse hovers over certain elements of the page, Um, you know, how long you read an article, like what you highlight with your mouse on the on the page, all of that can be collected and measured and is recorded and basically sold as advertising data by these various, you know, data brokers and various people who make money off of, um, you know, doing sort of like web tracking and web surveillance. Um, The natural sort of like business model of Facebook has been tracking everyone's interactions across a platform they control, which is also two-dimensional and which like encompasses, you know, basically things that people like, things that people interact with, and then optimizing everything to basically like show more content that they're more likely to interact with. And that's basically like kind of the golden, you know, the golden goal of all advertising and all surveillance is to basically monitor the way that humans interact with things. And then Change the environment to get them to interact more. And that's kind of like where we got where we're at now with the whole situation with like Cambridge Analytica and like all of the various scandals that have plagued Facebook for years and years now, which all basically boil down to Facebook is recording everything about how people interact with each other on their platform. And then then they're then using that data in order to optimize an algorithm, which then shows content that people are more likely to interact with. And that causes this like feedback loop where basically, you know, people are being shown more things that they're more likely to interact with. And then then that cascades and becomes, you know, kind of like QAnon and all of these various conspiracy outlets and like, you know, basically reinforces people's existing biases by like reinforcing them and giving them more and more content. And so when it comes to meta and when it comes to virtual reality, that whole dynamic, that is Facebook's business model. Like indisputably that is Facebook's business model. They make money by measuring interactions, by measuring people's um, the way that people, people interact and their activity on the internet. And then they use that data in order to change or manipulate people's behavior with, it, with an algorithm that prioritizes certain content over other content. So when it comes to the metaverse and when it comes to like these, what I, I like to call them embodied virtual spaces or embodied spaces, because that's basically what they are is like you have, as opposed to the the two-dimensional web where you're basically limited in I'm on this page, I'm scrolling through this page, I'm clicking on things in this page Um, you're now sort of embodying like with, you know, virtual reality and video games and like this virtual technology, what you're doing is you're actually inhabiting a embodied form of some kind, whether that's an avatar or something else. And you're interacting with a three-dimensional sort of like environment. And the way that those technologies work is that they use sensors and the sensors measure movement. They measure, they mention, they, um, they measure body movements. They measure head movements. Uh, they can sometimes, although it's not, I don't think it's uh, very advanced yet. Um, there's, there's some technology that can measure eye movements and iris, iris detection and like various forms of like telling what a person is looking at. There are actually companies that, um, that do this specifically for game developers, where, you know, there will be developers who are interested in knowing like, what parts of their virtual world are people interacting with more. And so they will basically get this software that's made by analytics companies that measures people's head movements uh, on the virtual headsets. And then they will use that data to basically like optimize and figure out like, oh, people are interacting or looking at this, more than they're looking at this. And so we're going to like tweak our game or our product or whatever to do that, to, you know, better reflect that. So what that basically gets to is like, you know, what I've written before and is like, you know, if Facebook's business model is to algorithmically affect what people interact with on the internet based on their own data, based on data that's taken from their previous interactions, then it's pretty safe to assume that that's kind of the same goal with meta is to take these physical interactions, these like physical movements, um, physical behaviors, and then use those as like another form of data that can be used to like prioritize content and basically show people advertising and other things like that.
0: Chris, this sounds like your nightmare.
2: Uh, Absolutely. I I mean, and that's like a really full, I can, really not add too much to that, but I did want to go back um, and and note that uh, one, of the things Jan- one of the things Janice mentioned is the uh, 2016 VR debut that Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg did. And it was awkward and, and cringy, but also featured uh, um, Zuckerberg and whoever else was there touring Hurricane Ravage, Puerto Rico. Um, uh, you know, like, in a... I, I mean, it, it was it's very sort of emblematic of what's wrong with Zuckerberg and Facebook and, and the way that they look at the world. Um, I mean, my running joke is, is kind of the, my, uh, claim that every future imagined by a tech company is worse than its previous iteration. Um, and, uh, I I do, I, I think it is absolutely nightmarish if we think about everything that Facebook has done, uh, that has harmed uh, our world, our democracy, that you know has aided genocide, and on and on and on. Um, if we think about moving that into a, a situation, a universe, a, a, a platform, however you want to think about it, that's even more controlled by Zuckerberg, um, and dictated by the likes of, of Zuckerberg and Boz and, and other Facebook folks, yeah, absolutely a nightmare.
0: Can you uh tell the audience just a little bit more generally kind of about your work and what you focus on?
2: Yeah, so uh I mean my my day job um I mean my day job is not Twitter. Um but it's a uh, it's uh, my day job is actually I'm a I'm an English professor. Um but I'm really interested and do a lot of work um writing, reading, uh sometimes speaking on privacy and surveillance, uh particularly how these things affect uh marginalized communities um do some work to looking at things like algorithmic bias but essentially um the things i'm interested in are the ways that uh technologies often have a disparate impact uh disparate harmful impact on uh, marginalized communities that's that's it in a nutshell
0: so it's not just zuckerberg right um A lot of these other, I I think a lot of people are kind of rushing into this space saying the word metaverse, um, and it's almost like marketing. They don't really know what it means. They maybe don't care. But big companies are moving into this space. Chris, why do you think there is a rush for big tech to build these virtual worlds?
2: Uh, You know, I think Janice got into it quite a bit, but I I think um, there's a real desire to, to latch on to the next big thing uh, I think the pandemic has in some ways shown people that I, I guess how I would say it is that there's this belief now that um, because there's so much danger still with physical contact that people um, are going to continue to operate online uh, in ways that they have for the past year and a half two years and that um, more and more as people work from home and do school from home and do kind of, you know, a lot of people do almost everything from home, that the next big thing will be these sort of interfaces where you can do all of these things in an uh, embodied way. Um, and so, and I do, I think also that there's this sense that a lot of companies, a lot of journalists, a lot of um, just in general have. When a billionaire says something or in in Zuckberg's case i don't even I, well yeah billionaire um, when a billionaire says something, we've started to accept it as true or as fate or as inevitable, and so when fate, when a company i mean a trillion dollar company says something like we're gonna we're going all in on the metaverse um, that's a sign to other companies that they should probably do that as well uh that they want to be on the front end of these things. And also they want to sort of join Facebook, but also not necessarily have Facebook be the one to dictate, dictate all the terms about what those, these things are going to look like.
0: I want to throw out a quote uh, from John Carmack, who is the, the game designer behind um, doom and also did a lot of work with Oculus until recently um, was interviewed on the Joe Rogan podcast, where all the best ideas are are, are voiced aloud. Um, not everyone can have a mansion. Not everyone can have a home theater. These are things we can simulate to some degree in virtual reality. Now the simulation is not as good as the real thing. If you're rich and you have your own home theater or mansion on private island, good for you. You're probably not the people that are going to benefit most most of the people in the world live in cramped quarters that are not what they would choose if they had unlimited resources. Um, And he kind of goes on to advocate that's, that says like the climate's going to get worse. He lives in Dallas. uh, And I can attest to that, that it's very hot there almost all of the time. Um, And that it basically advocating uh, VR as a way to mitigate and solve these problems. What, what do you both think of that? Janice, if you want to go first,
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like this is, like, you know, I I hate to use this term, like, lightly, but I think that's, like, classic neoliberal, you know, like, solutionism, like, tech solutionism, where it's like, okay, well, these problems that we caused, us being the, you know, the owner class, the people with all this, all these resources that are using it to, like, sort of, like, enrich ourselves, um, we can't fix those things. But here, we're going to give you this nice little virtual private island so that you can, like, enjoy your miserable existence slightly more. Like, that's, I feel like I saw someone say something like this on, I think, on Twitter. I forget who it was. But, like, basically, like, this idea that, like, I feel like on a large, on a large more general scale, I think that a lot of really powerful people see a lot of potential in a thing like the metaverse. Because they see it as a as a form of escapism as a form of like distraction, as a form of like here's something we can you know in the same way that Facebook is right now, right like a lot of people use Facebook as like social media right like the the endless scrolling the the addictive properties of you know, and I'm not one of those people who's just like, oh, like social media is inherently bad, and it's bad for your brain, and you know, blah blah blah, and like the internet is bad, and technology is bad. Like, I'm not one of those people who who says that, but like, it it's also like really important to acknowledge that there is an addictive aspect to social media, in, like, and in it's designed that way, and like that's part of that's part of the whole problem here is that like these algorithms that are designed to prioritize content that we're more likely to interact with based on our previous interactions. And, you know, you th- think about that and then just like put it into like sort of a, an embodied virtual space. And it's, you know, it has this potential. And, and this is like what I saw somebody saying, which is like, you know, I think that on some level, the people who have a lot of power and money and influence are, are all for that because it sort of enables it enables this sort of like almost like this mass psychosis where people can just kind of like indulge into this, into this world. And then it, it it allows them to more easily sort of forget that like, we're being given this as a replacement for not fixing the world that we actually live in. Um, and it, and it kind of gives them an out, you know, it kind of takes, I, I, I forget what the term for this is, but like in political theory, there's like a, I mean, it's not really like, It's kind of along the the lines of opiate of the masses, although I hate using that term because it's completely, it's just very past it's just very, you know, cringy at this point. But like there is a term for, you know, when you show when you show something in a fantasy in a safe fantasy setting as a way of get it satisfying people's urge to engage in something, but do it in a way which doesn't threaten capital and doesn't threaten the people who um, have the power to fix problems and who have the the resources, and it doesn't ultimately threaten them. I think like one really good example of this is the show Mr. Robot. um i I love that show. I st- I actually it's like one of my favorite TV shows in the past couple of years, but i I remember a friend said something about like, you know, this depicts like a revolution, right? It depicts like this like hacker revolution. Um, but it puts it into the realm of fantasy. And like, in a way, like a corporate sort of like TV show that does this takes that and puts it into this realm of fantasy, and and in, in doing so, does it make it less? Does it make us less likely to like actually want to do that in the real world because we've already satisfied our you know our sort of need to like indulge that fantasy about th- overthrowing you know the rich and and you know the and the capitalist class? So like, I think like a lot of powerful people really are rooting for Mark Zuckerberg and for Facebook and for Meta um, because they they recognize that this is like a way to get people disengaged from political processes, disengaged from, you know, things like that. And like, who knows it, that's just one potential result. like it, this thing could not take off. The metaverse could be another overblown idea. It could be another Silicon Valley pipe dream, but I think that like, it's, also worth mentioning that like this is definitely something that I think a lot of powerful people want to happen. And yeah, Chris mentioned before, like, you know, we we tend to hear a billionaire say something and then just assume it as like an inevitability, right? Like Facebook says they're gonna do something, oh, it's the future, and then people start, you know, getting on the boat. But I think like that's that's something that that a lot of powerful companies always want people to believe is that technology is inevitable, but it's never inevitable. It's always you know, it's the companies that make it seem that way to kind of like do this kind of like, this kind of like process of, of uh, manufactured consent where everyone's like, oh, well, privacy is dead. So, you know, might as well. But like that whole idea of privacy being dead of, again is like, you know, taken from that same idea where it's like, it's not something that's actually true. It's just something that, you know, a lot of people want you to think
0: is true. Right. The fights are still ongoing. You know, that's why we're having this conversation. Um, Chris, is this, you're a great coiner of phrases. Uh, one of the ones that really caught my eye in relation to this conversation is luxury surveillance. Yeah. Can you explain that concept and how it might apply here? And if it, if it doesn't, then please tell me.
2: Yeah, I, I do. I think it does. I, I want to jump back real quickly, though. I mean, I, I think in that statement you read, one of the things that often goes unexamined, uh, and I, I hope to tie this into luxury surveillance, is the idea that that all of us want, you know, to, uh, you know, that our dream is to consume more than, um, you know, any human being should, right? Like to take up more space and to use more resources and to extract more from the earth than any one person should. That's actually not my dream. Um, So like, (laughs) I don't want to mansion, you know, and I I certainly don't want a fake one while the world crumbles down around me. Um, But uh, the way I think about luxury surveillance is, it initially came about because I made what at the time I thought was a really sort of basic assertion, which is that ankle monitors um, and Fitbits and Apple watches all perform many of the same functions. Uh, I, it seemed very obvious to me, but um, some people had not seen it that way. And so I started to just sort of tease that out a little bit more and to think about like some of the differences are not, in fact, like what those devices do, but um, who chooses to wear them and who has the, those technologies deployed against them or are forced to wear them. Um, and in some cases, the, the, the other larger um, thing to, to think about with these devices is their aesthetic appeal. Um, now, the Apple Watch is getting larger and larger, so it's starting to more and more resemble um (laughs) like uh, ankle monitors and and things like uh watches that are that are used to to monitor formerly incarcerated people but it's basically when i when i talk about or think about luxury surveillance it's items that are generally associated with with people who are are wealthy or or well off um that perform a, a surveillance function um or a variety of surveillance functions but that are not often thought of as primarily su- uh, surveillance devices. Again, like a Fitbit, Apple Watch, a Tesla, uh, you know, smart homes, um, things like that. And I, and I think to the extent that um, many of, you know, Janice, uh, again, um, talked about the, the surveillance aspects of VR and the metaverse, right? Whether that's um, the tracking of people's facial muscles and, um, eye tracking or the a way that being entirely uh, embodied in a, in a world controlled by one company or, or a set of companies in, um, it would enable like it, a level of tracking that sort of heretofore was kind of only dreamed of. And this is as someone who is pretty well aware of the, the far reaching extent that surveillance uh catches all of us in our everyday lives. Um, but yeah, right now, I mean, a lot of these headsets are not things that are available to the average person, I would say price-wise. Um, and so they, and the, again, they're not, although they do have many surveillance functions, they're not thought of at least in in the scholarship I've read or, or pay attention to, they're not thought of primarily as surveillance devices, but that is, um, Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
0: Right, I'm kind of fascinated by this big VR push from mostly gaming companies and Facebook, but, but mostly gaming companies. Because there's so many issues with just getting people in a VR headset in the first place. It makes some people nauseous. Some people just can't use it. Um, I still
1: can't to this day. To this day, I get I get nauseous. I, I cannot use any of these things.
0: Um, you know, some people get very, like, they're hot, very uncomfortable very quickly. It's, it's quite a bit of weight on your head, depending on which model you're using. Um, and it's expensive. It's like the basic, the the cheapest model that you can get, uh, the cheapest Oculus is 300 bucks, right? Uh, but you scale up into luxury versions that are, are a thousand dollars and more from Valve and from HTC. Uh, and it, it is wild to me that they think that they're going to push this thing and get everyone to adopt them when there are so many problems and it's been very interesting to me to watch people like Gabe Newell and Mark Zuckerberg and, uh, uh, Carmack push this and not really discuss any of those downsides or issues or drawbacks.
2: I mean, one other thing to note really briefly is that they actually don't even fit on some people's heads, depending on uh, what your head looks like and what kind of hair you have. Um, you know, um, but yeah.
0: Um,
1: yeah and I think there's like definitely a lot of this is like following in the same pattern of so much silicon valley technology where the uh the people who are you know perhaps like on um, who are like either you know physically disabled or neuroatypical or who are not the sort of like quote unquote majority that they're initially designing for are all considered like edge cases. And so that, like, the design process always seems to completely exclude those people in the first place because they see it as something that they can sort of iterate later. Um, and then sometimes they will not actually iterate it later. But it's like one of those things where they'll just try to push it on a large enough audience as, as they can without, you know, kind of considering without taking those things seriously in the, in the beginning and the design process.
0: Right. And I, I think back to when we had that day without Facebook, you know, where their are back end completely shit the bed earlier this year. <laughs> um, and you know, my, my take on that was that, and I, and I wrote about this at motherboard that we forget how integrated Facebook is into the internet itself outside of America. Right. So imagine a future where commerce has to be conducted through this virtual headset or like large parts of commerce. Not the whole thing, obviously, Uh, but where you have uh, people, for whatever reason, that are completely cut off from various parts of of, uh, human interaction because they can't use these devices because it's all moved online. Um, Anyway...
1: (laughs) That's yeah. Have you seen have you seen the anime movie called Summer Wars? That's no. basically the plot of Summer Wars. Really? It's like a mass, yeah. It's it it takes place in this, it's a story about like this kid and the and uh this girl and like basically it takes place in this massive like basically what Facebook would become if it was like even more all-encompassing. And it's like all commerce in the world is and, and then there's and then a hacker like infiltrates it and like brings everything down and like the whole system is controlled by this one hacker and it's like up to the hero to like save the metaverse basically and in doing so save the world because so much all human interaction goes through this one system it's like it's not a very critical piece of cinema it doesn't really like examine like huh well maybe we shouldn't have this like massive metaverse that's controlled by one company. And it's like a giant central point of failure. Um, But like, it is, it is cute. And basically what you said just now is like the plot summary of summer wars.
0: Why? This is one of the things I hate about living right now uh, is that I feel like every, every stupid idea that comes out of Elon Musk or Zuckerberg's mouth is the plot of some dystopian sci-fi something somewhere that they thought was a good idea. It's, and, and I know they've read them. They've read these books and they take the completely wrong list. Anyway, that's the whole other episode.
2: Yeah. Um, Matthew, the other thing I wanted to, I think it's to say is I think it's understated the extent to which Facebook is even infrastructure in the U.S. I mean, uh, thank goodness on that day without Facebook, that there wasn't some type of, um, I mean, um, not that I'm aware of anyway, it was some type of disaster that required people to, to uh, log on to Facebook, you know, because um, schools use Facebook, you know, cities use it as their, um, you know, instead of a city having a website, now they have a Facebook page. And so, I mean, I think back to when there was uh, the climate issues in, in Texas with the freezing, that I think it was Austin that was asking everyone to go to the Facebook page in order to watch uh, the city's announcement on, on, on what, steps to do next for people who are um you know in danger and yeah i mean to to further embed um really critical uh structures into facebook system i think is is extremely dangerous um and also i mean again renders people subject to all kinds of surveillance and harms that they shouldn't have to engage in or be a part of just to uh just to go, uh, you know, live their daily lives.
1: Yeah, I think it's also worth mentioning, definitely, like, just how much I think people in the global north don't understand that, like, Facebook is such an essential communications infrastructure to large parts of the global south. Like, that's just where it's it's Facebook and it's WhatsApp, which is owned by Facebook. So, like, when something happens like this and Facebook goes down and its DNS gets, gets you know, messed up, like, that that is it. You know, a lot of these places don't have infrastructure. They just have, they just have Facebook.
0: I, I, I want to talk about some of the algorithms and things that underpin a lot of this stuff too. So this is something, uh, Chris, I know we we've written about it motherboard and Chris, I know you're kind of an expert in and we've danced around it a little bit. I want to get really specific. Um, so there's this perception that computers are without bias, but that is completely false correct can you kind of tease this out for us
2: yeah i mean huh, I, I i guess uh, yeah it's i know uh, it's sure, a big it's, question it's, right. i mean the thing is I, I mean i i think that the only people left making this claim are either people who are um completely ill-informed or completely disingenuous um you know we could talk about the ways that these um you know a lot of these systems are trained um, we can talk about the the people who design these systems with no input from the community or no expertise in the particular uh, area for which they're supposedly designing a thing. I mean, but the the simplest way to put it is that um, systems reflect the culture um, and the the uh, um, biases of the people who make them, um, and so it's not really possible. Uh, and I, you know, again, some people would push back against this, but. Uh, in my um, understanding or estimation, it's not really possible to create unbiased systems. Um, I think in some ways we we started to lose, um, sort of like um, lose the argument on this because so much has of the focus now has been um, for uh, companies to say, well, we've had like bias auditing and things like that, right? Then we're free of bias. You know, so for so for instance, like there's a company that does like algorithmic hiring, um, you know, and does things, I, I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah. And so they they did like, a, they had like a, an outside company come and say they were sort of free of bias, um, which um, just by the nature of what they do, they cannot be. Um, and I don't think such a thing exists, um, but I do think, sorry, this is like a long rant on like, what I hoped would be like a a more succinct answer. But because um, these systems reflect the biases of the culture and the people who create them, um, I think the company pushback now from a lot of tech companies has been to say, okay, like we're going to sort of bias wash by having um, third parties come in and look at us and, and rubber stamp us. But the problem with that is that there's sort of never a way to completely erase the bias of things, um, often because the very nature of what these things do is deeply embedded in like kind of like a very discriminatory uh, history, but also like the thing that they're trying to do is in itself um, very discriminatory. Can you give us some? About, like, can you give us
0: some concrete examples? Um,
2: so, uh, let's take Facebook for instance, or Meta. Right. And so one of the things that we we see often right is that um uh that ad targeting on facebook okay, and so it's come out very often that um the algorithmically determined categories that Facebook often has um allows people to do ad um targeting in some very discriminatory and often hateful ways, um whether that's um not showing job ads or apartment ads to a particular um, ethnic group or age group or allowing people to target um, advertising based on your some kind of like hate affinity like your hate of a certain group or things like that whether that be um, Jewish people or black people or on and on and on so we've seen that over and over again and so the cycle of that is typically that a researcher, academic, or journalist discovers that Facebook is doing this. Facebook makes some tweak and says they're not doing it, and then um, days, weeks, months later, they f- they find out that they're still doing it, right? Or they're doing it. You can still do that thing, but in a slightly different way, right? So I no no longer. So I'm being I'm being careful to to try to use accurate language. Um, but for instance, Facebook. Used to let people target target ads based on whether or not you um, hated Jews. Okay. No. Um. So, Facebook makes a tweak so that that specific thing is not a thing you can do in that way. But the very nature of like the surveillance mechanism, um, that that uh, is what Facebook does. And that they um, that they cater to trying to micro target people based on affinities that are determined by Facebook makes it so that it's never not going to be discriminatory it's only going to be discriminatory in different ways
0: right the the it's baked into the system itself yeah right like that's um, how or, it makes money
2: or if we think about hiring tools right and so um, you know, sort of famously, Amazon had a tool that they um, said they never put into place, but that um, that uh, would put forth um, men based on um, the history of ha- Amazon kind of mainly hiring men, you know, things like that. But a lot of these tools look at things. So like the, the history of hiring people in the U.S. is is racist and sexist and ableist. And so if you're going to base in any way, your future hiring on past hiring, then there's no way to make it not racist, sexist and ableist. So the nature of what you're trying to do based on the systems that you're using means that you're never going to eliminate the thing you say you want to eliminate.
0: The foundations are bad.
2: Yeah. I
1: know there's like one, uh, I don't know if you know uh, Oz Keys, uh, who's a researcher um, who uh, I think is, has been featured in Motherboard a couple of times. But they have a paper where they have a where they show a demonstration. It's a white paper where they show a demonstration of a system that algorithmically determines which old people should be turned into mulch. Mm-hmm. And they note that it's extremely fair and that it and it targets. It does not discriminate ag- against any genders or or um, or racist or anything. And it's like that, that I, I really like that as an example for like what you've been what you've been describing, Chris, because that's like, it, it's like the foundational aspect of what you're building is based on these like extremely biased and racist and, 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 terrible systems. And so like, it doesn't actually matter. And like, I feel like the, the idea of fairness has become sort of like the term that a lot of these companies have adopted. And the idea of fairness and it's actually like I, I was think I was thinking of writing something about this recently because it's like actually a really terrible metric for harm, right? Like mm-hmm. the idea of fairness. Like things can be fair, but they can still be harmful. Because if what you're doing is inherently harmful, it doesn't matter how fair it is. Like it doesn't matter if people are equally harmed, yeah. um, which they usually aren't. They're, you know, but it, it's it's the kind of thing where, you know, we're we're needing to get more deep into sort of like the, I, I like to call algorithms ideological systems because really what they're doing is they're taking someone's ideology and they're encoding it into a sort of like, you know, inescapable computer says yes, computer says no um, format. And that's kind of like, that's kind of the whole idea is like, we, we need we need to like recognize the role that ideology plays in the creation of these systems and who who they're being designed for uh, like who is, who is in mind, like who is being kept in mind when these systems are designed and who are they being designed in order to benefit um, ultimately? Because in the case of, you know, Facebook, you know, this, this is being designed to benefit Mark Zuckerberg and his company and other things. And that's kind of like how we get to a place where we have a a system that algorithmically prioritizes some content over others, even if it's like, based on the metric of, you know, hating Jews or something terrible like that. Um, That's how we get there. It's because, like, that is what the system is built to do. It's built to prioritize content based on user interaction, regardless of whether that content is good or bad.
2: Yeah. I mean, it reminds me a lot of uh, Kathy O'Neill's definition, which, you know, she says algorithms are opinions embedded in code, you know. And I I think um, one of the things we... I, I think it's always important to remember when we have these discussions is the extent to which a lot a lot of times um code or math or algorithms are used in a way um to uh uh what's the word um um to legitimate things that people would want to do anyway. You know, um I mean I think of the um the famous example one of the famous examples. Um, in my city, right, Detroit, where someone, a black man, was falsely implicated by facial recognition. Um, you know, and the the cops slipped up and said, Oh, well, I suppose the machine is wrong, right? So yeah. like the, the idea was, you know, that the guy the 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 um the machine is the ultimate arbiter of whether something is true or false, right? Whether the guy was there or says it's him or whether anyone else recognized him or thought he was there are all irrelevant. It's whether the machine says it or not. Um, and so a lot, I mean, very often, what the, um, these systems do and the way people have faith, you know, um, and I, I use that word very intentionally, have faith in these systems is that they are, are granted the ability to be the ultimate um, judge on whether something's true or false or fair or not or, or right or wrong.
0: And to bring it back around, you know, what Zuckerberg is talking about is embedding these kinds of systems into a world where, Janice, as you said at the top, the interaction is more than just scrolling and clicking and looking at things. Um, There are so many points of data to be collected in a virtual world, especially as the technology improves. Imagine being able to tell, you know, read someone's body language as they move through virtual space and figure out what their arm movements mean as they're interacting with something and, and and being able to take that and, and serve them algorithmically content and advertising based on the, the, the amount of time they touch something that is terrifying to me. Um,
1: yeah. That's like, also like, I think it's worth mentioning too that like, there's a lot of companies out there that um, claim to be able to do things like this, that claim to be able to read people's emotional state based on their facial expressions. Um, and honestly, like the, the overwhelming majority of machine learning experts that I've ever spoken to have said, it's absolute nonsense. Like it, you can't, the, the human face is just like way too, like you can't accurately derive someone's mental state by looking at their face. You think about all the like micro expressions and like very subtle movements like that people make involuntarily um, through their faces. And like, sure, there's a way that you can probably map some of those and ascribe like categories of like surprise, laughter, blah, 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 stuff like that. But like the way in which a lot of these companies are advertising these services make it seem like they can actually kind of like almost read your mind by looking at your facial expressions or your body movements and stuff like that and i think it's like important to be to to both acknowledge that yes it is potentially very harmful to like be collecting this data um and and i do think that regardless of whether or not it's correct or accurate you know we've seen in the past that like it will be utilized. It will be like utilized in order to make inferences and assumptions about people. But at the same time, we also have to acknowledge that like a lot of these things are just not very good. And they're they're not like, they're kind of snake oil in a lot of cases. Like you can't, they're just simply things you can't do with machine learning. Like even in its advanced stage right now, like you, you can't read a person's mind by examining their face no matter how much how many data points you collect um, so i think it's like both of those things can be true simultaneously like the data can be inaccurate and undependable and companies are also going to use it anyway in order to make inferences about people's behaviors
2: no yeah no. if i could just oh i'm sorry no no you go ahead if i could just add to this uh you know um Jathan sadowski has a term he calls a uh, potemkin ai I think, which is um, really useful in this case. And I think in some ways, although it's not um, primarily AI or only AI, we can think about the metaverse in, in these terms too, which is that companies, a lot of, of times tech companies or representatives of tech companies make wild claims about what a tech can do, not because it can do that thing at this time um, or that in, in some cases, it will ever be able to do that thing because it's impossible but to sort of serve as a placeholder, um, um, like a, a sort of um, foundation of hype that holds the place of that, um, that sort of holds that belief in place until the time when that the tech is better. Um, so that, um, but it, in part, the other part of that is that it goes relatively unexamined by people who don't spend a lot of time looking at these things, right? So the idea that, you know, there's ever going to be some super intelligent AI or that, you know, that's going to like su- like take over the world or, um, or that, yeah, that uh, you can look at someone's expressions or body language or listen to their voice. Um, you know, I mean, we could spend all day listing the things that people say AI and ML can do that it not only can't, but probably never will be able to do. But that is sort of secondary to the belief and the investment in um that comes from from putting those claims out into the open. You know, I mean I I see I've seen um for instance like the military buys wholesale into this, right? Like that there's going to be some AI like super intelligent AI that um you know can like wage war in the place of humans, right? Like all these things, right? Or um and so it, it's in some ways like a really Um, kind of keen investment strategy that sort of, yeah, again, like holds in place an idea whether or not it's accurate that, um, but it allows people to act as if. um, And again, yeah, lots of harms come from that.
0: The military is a really good example. Um, Sometimes it seems that they feel quite credulous uh, in what they're willing to believe Um, they also like to name things Skynet all the time. It's just like asking for trouble. Um, so how do we fight back against this? Uh, and uh, one data point in this is Chris, uh, normally we've started to stream these on Twitch. We're not doing it today because you're uncomfortable being on camera. Uh, or maybe that's perhaps the wrong, wrong way to put it. So can you tell us, uh, why we can't see your lovely face right now?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, basically I, um, the way I put it is that I have a broad based uh, rejection to um, all forms of surveillance. And so when I have the opportunity to not participate, I do. And so, you know, I mean, um, as someone who spends a lot of time looking at these systems, I know that there's no, uh, unless I destroyed every electronic device I had and moved out into the middle of the woods, right? There's no escaping it. Um, but there are um, ways of rejecting it when we can. Um, and because I have the privilege of doing that, I also want to make it um, sort of make a very public show of it so that other people um, might use that as an example. And so to to be, to use a specific example, I teach, right? And I know that a lot, especially in the past two years, a lot of professors have some type of camera on policy. Um, and what, so there's a, a couple different problems I have with that. One is that um, it exposes students to um, a kind of surveillance from companies that we shouldn't have the right to demand of them. But the other thing is, is it exposes students to a kind of surveillance from the professor, um, from other people in the class, right? It, it assumes that we have the right to see into people's homes. Um, and it also assumes a lot of other things about like stable interconnect connections and distraction free environments, like all these things that are based on like class and privilege and access and things like that. And so, uh, and also, I mean, the facial recognition industry that scrapes our images from a lot of these um, platforms has some deep roots in white supremacy and racial discrimination, um, so whenever I can say no to that, I say no to it.
0: Janice, do you have any tips for avoiding the surveillance state?
1: I mean, that's that's a pretty good point that Chris made about like just like the 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 individual refusal, which I think is important. Um, although you know, it's 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 obviously like something that's very like you know localized in the sense that like ultimately these are systems that are at a very deep level as we've been discussing at a very deep level on, on our society and the pro- the production of this technology is entirely a result of you know the world that we live in and the the like you know here in America we're a you know genocidal colonial project that was basically built on top of the slave labor of other people. And so, you know, that, that is basically the base operating system, if you will, of all of the technology that is built on top of it. So, um, but, but I do also think that what Chris is saying is, is really great because it's the, the, the acts of individual refusal and specifically when you're a teacher or when you're someone who is like involving students and, uh, you know when you have a, a degree of care for other people offering them the option to not expose themselves to these systems and like being able to like consent or not consent because like ultimately what I what I always have said about privacy is that it's basically just consent, right? It's consent practices with a view towards you know technology because what you're you're what you're saying is essentially like I do not consent to be being to having my Image reproduced and my data about myself transmitted to these companies, or in this way, um, because what what you're actually talking about when you talk about um, algorithms and surveillance, and I was touching on this a bit before, is like basically like it's it's our bodies that are basically being acted upon by a machinic logic that determines that makes judgments and uh, determinations about who we are and, you know, what our significance is to other people. And it's like the kind of thing where, you know, people, everybody judges each other, right? Like you go out in the street, like I go on the train and I'm looking at other people and like judging their outfits and stuff like that, because I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a shifty Scorpio, and I love to judge people silently. Um, but, <laughs> like, you know, it's it's another thing to go from like an individual kind of like judgment that comes from this limited interaction that I have with a person on the other side of the train, and a digitized, um, scalable interaction where I can observe all people on all trains and make determinations about all of those people based on their body movements, their style of dress, their various things about them. So like, yeah, like I, I've used the term like machinic logic because like that's that's basically what is happening when we're under surveillance in an in a in a time when algorithms are used to make determinations about people is that we're being sort of subjected to this machinic logic which makes inferences and observations about you about you about other people um which may not be accurate but it doesn't actually matter whether or not they're accurate the, the what matters is that those inferences are being made and it kind of removes a sense of agency from yourself right because like your a person's ability to define themselves is extremely important that's the basis of all autonomy and you're you're kind of removing someone's autonomy in a way and so that's why i was saying what what Chris was saying was really important about, you know, giving people the option to opt out and, or, or more importantly, to not automatically opt people in because a lot of times people won't be prepared to be informed enough to like actually make a consensual decision, right? Like people, you talk about not having the ability to consent, right? Like when someone is like, when you're at a party and someone is like, intoxicated like they don't have the ability to consent in the same way like a person who can't understand how their data is going to be potentially manipulated and used and how their uh like inferences made about them by algorithms would be used against them someone who doesn't have the ability to comprehend all that shouldn't is not able to consent to that kind of surveillance so i think like starting with that understanding is 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 a big part to answering your question about like what we can do about it it's just like understanding the limits of consent and how that applies to these systems.
0: Do either of you think that there's my last question, do any of you think that there's, and we kind of touched on it earlier, a possibility that this thing will fall on its face. Facebook seems, uh, deeply uncool right now. You know, they timed this announcement, uh, to 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 roll out right as you know there there's all these investigations and the facebook papers are coming out these deeply troubling questions about what it's doing behind the scenes uh you know vr is a pain in the ass it makes some people sick and it's very expensive um i feel like the market for putting a port in your brain elon musk is going to be pretty small uh and it just feels like younger generations think, look at this stuff and think like, uh, no. And I mean, Zuckerberg's his, his big piece of killer tech is meetings, meetings without legs. Super cool. Like, it just feels like maybe this won't take off. Is that a possibility here?
2: I, I think it's a distinct possibility, but, um, we've all got work to do if we want to uh, make that. So, um, I mean, a couple of things. I think uh, the uh, the glass holes is a is a great example, right? The the, the flop of Google Glass. Um, you know, I do think that there's so one of the things that I think Facebook has learned, as well as other companies, is to give lip service to a lot of things, um, whether or not they're going to do them, right? So we've heard in the launch of Meta and of Facebook Stories and all those things we've heard them say some of the right things about whether or not say they're going to have facial recognition in their projects or their products. Um, What, you know, whether or not they're going to engage with communities to ask what they want or what, you know, whether or not there'll be consent or people be able to opt out. Um, I don't think that any of these um, claims that they're making are genuine. Um, But uh, you know, this is a far cry from move fast and break things, right? So they've learned at least that they have to say the right things, but we have to make it so that they have to do the right things. Um, And the only way, the only thing that these companies understand, unfortunately is force, They're never going to do the right thing because um, it is the right thing. Um, But the other thing is, I don't think it's, I don't think, I think it's intentional that we've seen um meetings as like the uh you know the 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 use case right now right because that is one of the ways in which um we could have these products forced on us right rather than like choose to use them um and so it is it's kind of funny right that it seems like their best idea is like how can we make meetings worse but like <laughs> The the I think that the um, insidiousness of that is that if your boss says you have to get one or if your boss buys one for everyone in the office, then we're all going to be using them, right? <laughs> like this can't be overstated. Um, you know, everyone uses Slack. Uh, you know, I mean, people don't know that Slack stands for um, Supreme or uh, Supreme Log of uh, all communication and knowledge. Right, You're like, <laughs> I didn't know I that. I didn't make that up, right? That's I just thought sad. it
1: was an IRC ripoff from the cloud. <laughs> <laughs> it started
2: yeah.
0: I was like, this is
1: just IRC except in the cloud.
0: <laughs> it was like the, the chat room for a really strange little MMO that not a lot of people played. Yeah. They, that got really? spun off.
2: Yeah. Um, but that's what that stands for. Um, and so um, with... I want to be careful with how I say this, but with one of the lessons from Google glass is that there is um, a measure of um, social punishment from doing things that are um, violations of social codes Um, that whether it was uncool or, you know, more severe, you know, people having more severe reactions, like it was a violation of people's space in many ways. So you, you know, walk into a party or a bar or, you know, a bedroom or whatever, wearing like Google glasses and um, society made that known. Um, And so, and, you know, there's a lot of other ways. I mean, I think worker pushback, I think the fact that a lot of workers are revolting against Facebook, um, uh, you know, I think unionizing. um, So there are lots of ways. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, that legislation is now not only, um, possible, but likely. Um, I think all these things make it so that these um, something like the metaverse is not inevitable. But I also think we don't want to rest and just assume it's going to fail because Facebook is sort of like took a punch. All right. Yeah. I'm,
0: sorry, Janice, Go ahead.
1: Oh, I was just going to say the yeah. I think like like the cultural pushback has a, a huge role here. Like like what Chris was saying about how you know like if your boss forces you to, to wear this, this thing, like, and then, and then, you know, can then be used for um, it can then be used uh, to monitor uh, prisoners or, you know, it's, it's like the same, this is like kind of how tech is introduced and, and it's not inevitable. And I think that like, you know, you think about I, I the example I like with the Google glass is like, we're talking about the metaverse and there's a, there's a character in William Stevenson's snow crash uh, called the gargoyle who is literally a cia stringer um, who wears like goggles and like all this like sensor stuff and just goes around recording things and sends them to the the central intelligence corporation <laughs> which is basically like facebook or google or whatever and it's and the way that stevenson describes the gargoyle in the novel is absolutely hated like everyone fucking hates this guy um, and so it's like, it's kind of like almost like an echo of that. And, and I think it, it also goes, goes to show what Chris was saying, which is that, you know, it, it's, it's not just because a tech corporation is introducing this doesn't mean it's inevitable. And I think that like a lot of, a lot of like the cultural reaction to things like Google Glass and things like the metaverse is going to determine a lot about whether it's actually implemented or whether it's actually the thing that happens in the future.
0: Alright, well I would love to sit here and keep having this conversation I could do it for another hour But I'm going to start the outro music Because uh, I need to let y'all go Chris, where can people find your work?
2: Uh, I am uh, on Twitter I'm extremely online at Hypervisible Uh, I sometimes write um, for real life And um, Fast Company And uh, I may have a
0: piece coming out in Wired soon and, and Janice, where can people find you? Obviously on the fine website, motherboard.vice.com. I am,
1: I am on the fine website, motherboard. And um, I'm also on Twitter at Janice Rose, spelled with a U, J-A-N-U-S. Um, yeah. All
0: right. Thank you both so much for coming to cyber and walking me through this.
1: Thanks.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Traffic jams